Batman Family Reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am Sean M. Myers, one of your hosts, and with me is my co-host and bat cousin, Paul Keene. How are you doing, Paul? I'm exhausted, Sean. I'm just out of breath from the potato sack race. I should have never challenged Robin. He is a killer at that with his thick thighs, let me tell you. <laughs> Man, that's that's you were a fool for getting into that. Well, I hope you're not too tired to tell the folks at home about the show. You got it. So Batman Family, as hopefully you all know, by now was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978 and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints, before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon Manbat, and even Ragman and the Demon. Both Sean and I collected and read these comics as they came out, and we are excited to share our love of this era at the Batman family reunion. Let's dive into issue number four. Issue number four is cover dated March, April of 1976, but it actually went on sale December 4th, 1975, just a few days before Christmas, which figures into both of the main stories. The page count is 64 pages, cover price of 50 cents with two all new stories and two reprints. The cover artist is Ernie Chan, which is also Ernie Chawa, C-H-U-A. Paul, what do you think about this cover? So this cover is is okay, I guess, at the end of this. This cover is a lie. <laughs> it's a lie. First of all, the scene doesn't happen in this story because it's got Batgirl and Robin, but it's got a, another one of Sean's favorite box covers. The outside is a burnt red, and I would have thought that for Christmas, they could have used more of a Christmassy red. Mm-hmm. They've got the trade dress at the top, starring Batman Family, Giant, 50 Cents. Two new tales starring Batgirl and Robin. So this one is our first time we've got a solo Batgirl and a solo Robin story. Got the heads down the side of Elongated Man, the Phantom General, and Fat Man. And in the middle, you've got a gang of three thugs dressed up in Santa outfits. Uh, The one guy just whacked Robin with a Santa sack full of toys, while Batgirl is driving another toboggan after them. That scene, as we mentioned, is nowhere in either story. But the one thing, the, the best part of the, the, the cover I like is the guy who's driving this the sled, the, the, the front sled, is pulling down his Santa beard and, and mustache, I assume, to make sure that the kids know that this is not the real Santa trying to battle with Batgirl and Robin. How about you, Sean? What do you think of the cover? Uh, it's funny. I love and hate this cover. <laughs> so we'll start off with hate. Yeah, that background cover, like you're you're seeing red, not that you're mad, you're seeing the, a reddish <laughs> color. I'm seeing this muddy, dirt water, ugly chocolate brown color, which I'm not a fan of at all. Kind of like you said, like why not some kind of Christmas, and it wouldn't have to be white, but some kind of Christmassy cover. It would have been, and I don't think this was possible back then, it would have been neat to have a really, really faint, almost... Christmas wrapping paper kind of design behind it, like very faint. I think that would be cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not a fan of these boxed where the main cover image is just in a little box. However, if you're going to do it, I do like this way because the three heads on the left-hand side, I'm like 99% sure these were drawn by Ernie. Cause like, and they're all kind of facing the same way. They're all uniform. So I like that. I jokingly kind of, said that the image is a lie 
which it is because here I understand up on this blurb says two new tales starring Becker and Robin, but you get an image where you see them together. Now I will say, I do think, and maybe I'm being generous. I do think like the three people in the sled are supposed to represent the criminals in the story because you have the woman in the back who has like her pistol and you have the guy who's like the Santa. So I do think they are representative of the criminals in each of the separate stories. But I want to see a story where Batgirl's on her bat sled and she's rescuing Robin after getting knocked out. This is the lost Christmas story that I want someone to write. We'll make sure to post the image of this cover as well as uh, a bunch of additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website. Sean, can you remind me what the name of that website is? Absolutely. Fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, let's jump into the first story. Okay, so the first story is a nine-pager starring Batgirl entitled Cage Me or Kill Me, written by Elliot S. Magan, penciled by Pablo Marcos and inked by Vince Coletta. It has been reprinted once in Batgirl, the Bronze Age Omnibus Volume 1, and the whole issue we should mention is also available on DC Universe Infinite. Commissioner Gordon purposefully strides off the late-night Amtrak train in Washington, D.C., planning to surprise his congresswoman daughter, Barbara, for the Christmas holidays. It seems that Babs just can't get away from her committee work. I guess politicians in the DCU work way harder than in our universe. Anyway, Babs surprises her dad instead, having deduced he was going to be on that train. They walk back to her apartment near Capitol Hill, but they are accosted by Tad Wolf. Who? Well, this is somebody Batman and Commissioner Gordon had put away and then released when it was discovered that his brother was the actual crook and Tad helped Commissioner Gordon and Batman put his brother and others from the mob away. Before they can even talk about what's going down, a hot rod drives by trying to kill Tad. The Gordons are able to push him out of the way, saving his life. The car races off and Babs whispers instructions to her dad before chasing after them as Batgirl. The Domino Daredevil catches up with the car to find Diamond Lily, Gangnam's nose deadly hit lady, seen neither before now nor after in any future appearance. Batgirl puts evil Knievel to shame doing acrobatics on her bike and is able to snare Lily's gun with her bat rope. Of course, the gun is diamond studded. Strangely, she then drops the gun shortly thereafter as the bad guys pick it up and go back to finish the hit. Tad is a sitting duck and he's an easy target for Diamond Lily who rubs him out. Batgirl continues to pursue and eventually the bad guys keep swerving to avoid her bike and other obstacles and they end up in the Potomac River. But the good news is Tad's actually alive. Turns out Batgirl replaced the bullets in Diamond Lily's gun with blanks and dropped it on purpose. This was so that the underworld could believe that Tad was dead and not take revenge on him. Commissioner Gordon and Babs arrange for Tad to enter witness protection and get plastic surgery. When he asked them why would they go to such trouble for him, Batgirl just says, just remember what time of year it is. Tad replies, yeah, it's going to be the merriest Christmas of my life. Sean, what did you think of this almost a Christmas story? Well, that's it. So for the most part, I do really like this story. Given the small amount of pages, nine pages, it's very action filled. There's something about the structure, which I'll talk about, which I really like. The only thing I don't like, and this is, this is really iffy anyway. In our minds, we're thinking it's supposed to be a Christmas story, and it's kind of, like you said, almost a Christmas story. It kind of is. This was the Christmas issue, so I would have liked something a little bit more 
Christmassy, but I realize that's like a small, like a very small part of it. It's advertising a Christmas issue on the cover, and we don't really get it from at least Batgirl story. Now we'll get it in the next story, so stay exactly. tuned. And but... that does reading it in the package, it does make it easier that this isn't as heavily a Christmas story. But what I was talking about before, one thing I love about this is in a lot of stories in Batman Family stuff happens and I love that that stuff happens and I'm talking about like bonkers stuff like a wedding or something like that (laughs) and then they get to the last page and it is text heavy exposition of oh well we did this because this and this and this happened because this 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 and this and don't forget that we did this because of this 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 and this but the nice thing about this story is it really is peppered through you're kind of like three or four pages in, and then you see, oh, okay, they're doing it with blanks. Oh, that's why she dropped the gun. So it's not, you know, she's not explaining everything to Commissioner Gordon at the very last six panels. I agree. It's a well-constructed story by Elliot Magan. I couldn't resist. Tad did appear in a previous issue in Detective Comics number 449. The best part, he's wearing the exact same outfit. (laughs) I was I was going to say that. So one great thing about the DC Universe Infinite app is, yeah, so I saw that that little mark and I thought, oh, he's probably in like one panel and you're not even going to know it's him. But yeah, so a cool thing about that. So I went and the cover is like Batman on a horse. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, okay, okay <laughs> that's fine. On? But then I flipped it and it's uh, like the Midnight Rustlers of Gotham City. And I had that comic, but I had it without the cover. So all these years, I had no idea that that issue was this story that they refer to. And, and that, story really, that story is exciting. It's neat. It's a pretty bizarre story. Batman has to rustle cows because there's a cattle theft going on in Gotham City, which I don't know why people are bringing cattle into Gotham City. It's not like it's in Texas. But anyway, let's go back to this one. What else? I, I really like the splash page on this. I think it's an exciting splash page, Sean. I'm going to give mm-hmm. you that. And this scene doesn't really happen in the story either. It's just a little more exciting to have. I love how Commissioner Gordon's on the back of a Batgirl's bike. And that's kind of a cool visual as the people are shooting at Tad. So pretty nice splash page. Talk about the art by Pablo Marcos in a little bit. I like Babs' all-white outfit. She's still rocking the 70s clothes, looking great. Do you know what a souvenir box is? I have no idea. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that was like a real, th- is it like a hope chest where you put your things that you want for the wedding? <laughs> well, I left it out of the synopsis, but just so our listeners know what Babs says to her dad, she says, dad, give me that souvenir box you keep in your pocket, your coat pocket, and I'll tell you my plan. And apparently Commissioner Gordon keeps blanks that happen to fit the gun that Diamond Lil uses <laughs> In his souvenir box that he carries at all times. (laughs) Diamond Lily, I tried to find her. This was her first and only appearance. Her stick is she's got diamonds glued to her gun. Speaking of Diamond Lily, I love on page seven, the little like, it's like a six panel silent grid of action where she's she's shooting the gun and Batgirl's coming up behind her and she's shooting the gun, Batgirl's coming up. She's shooting the gun, Batgirl's coming up. She's shooting and then there's like a, a close-up of Bab's face and she just kind of has like a little smirk because she knows what's going on. <laughs> I love that. She's like laughing inside because she knows that she's got glanks in the gun. That's an effective sequence by Pablo. I want to move you back to page five. I loved the aerial sequence on page five. At the bottom of four, Babs takes her bike and bonks the back of the car. So she flips up and then does a backflip with the bike in midair, landing the bike on, on the roof of the car, driving the bike down to the, the hood 
Wood, then using her lasso to grab the gun out of Diamond Lil's hand and then continuing on in front of them. I'm like, wow. So when I was a kid, they would always advertise on the radio the Joey Chitwood stunt show spectacular things. And I kind of wonder if this is these are the kind of things that you would see when you went to those shows. Yeah, really. You know, if you look at page eight, they keep shooting at Batgirl and they don't know why they're not getting her. And the guy who's driving says, give me that piece. I'll show you how to use it. And he tries to shoot her and he can't. And because of that, the car swerves into the river. And then we don't know what happens to them. And Batgirl comes back. She doesn't capture them. Does she fish them out of the water? We had no idea. That's why Diamond Lily never made another effect. I guess that's why she's still floating around the bottom of the Potomac. But speaking of cars, on page six, I absolutely love that Commissioner Gordon says, just get me out of sight and keep him under remote surveillance out here while they pull up in a marked car that says Federal Bureau of Investigation. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice that. That's excellent. And I love, we're jumping around all over the place, but that seems to be. That's yeah, our habit. style, I guess. Uh, yeah. So on page nine, up in the corner, it says, look at this face, Tad, because after the operation, that's what you'll look like. With a new name, new job, the works. So I guess it's kind of like face off, where you just peel <laughs> <it> right off <laughs> under protective custody. <laughs> it's a nice ending, nice enough. It's a good story. You know, Elliot Magan actually wrote that other appearance of Tad in Detective 449. So I guess he felt that this was a way to give him some closure because maybe he realized, oh, I can use him again because. Because all the bad guys would be after him, you know, so maybe I can use that in a story. So uh, that's that's a good use of, of follow up. It's only about six months later. Well, And also, I kind of think that shows how comic book writing was in the 70s, because I read this issue literally for years. Well, actually, technically for decades and decades. And never, <laughs> never, even, yeah, never even thought to go back to detective. But still, like this story was fine on its own. I didn't need the backstory of him to understand this issue. Now, of course, thanks to the app, I did go back and read it, even though I had it coverless. So it just adds a little bit, but it's neat because like back in the 70s, you could just pick up an issue and it was fine. Well, you got, we got a complete story in nine pages. No, no question about it. Before we leave this story, I want to do our little uh, bat history segment. And just so our listeners know, we've been calling it bat history, but if anybody has a, a better name for that or any of our segments, we're happy to entertain that. Just let us know in the comments or send us an email or anything else. This month, I wanted to talk about Pablo Marcos. Many of our listeners, I think, will be familiar with his name. He's a classic Bronze Age artist, and I wanted to just go into his history a little bit. So he was born in Peru in 1937 and is still with us today at age 84. He even has his own website, pablomarcos.com, which I encourage everybody to go check out. I read most of this information about him and got some additional information at you know, Mike's Amazing World and the DC Wiki. And he's still offering commissions and even some original art. A quote directly from him about his early life, Pablo says, Growing up as a kid, I would paint signage for the local market, always practicing my hand. At the school, Bartolome Herrera, I was mentored by novelist and artist Juan Rivera Saavedra, where he introduced me to comics and familiarized me with the works of Alberto Breccia, Mario Ugeri, Arturo de Castillo, none of whom I've heard of, but then Bern Hogarth, who was the classic Tarzan artist mm. in the early 20th century. He, he goes on to say how he was accepted to the University of San Marcos to study economics, but it was a major he pursued to appease his father, who was concerned he couldn't make a living as an artist. <laughs> so then anyway, he did drop out in, in the 1960s. He did work for Peruvian newspapers, including a newspaper strip 
of a version of James Bond, 007. There are the few examples of which you can see on his website. Pretty, pretty cool. In 1965, he actually became nationally known in Peru for two reasons. One is a courtroom artist for some high profile cases. And second, as a sports page artist who documented soccer matches with his artwork. So they didn't have videotape, right? So they, he would draw, come back after the game and draw pictures of, of soccer matches, which I found fascinating. He, he says, my job was to illustrate the most important local and international news of the day, guiding myself from the teletype. I was deeply impacted by the death of Che Guevara and the execution of Pichuzo, a child rapist. I had to illustrate these events, but not everything I covered was as morose. Attending the soccer stadium for work was very exciting for me. The stadium, to no surprise, was the best place to capture the matches. I would document these tournaments with pencil and paper. My mind functioned as a video recorder. The memories would remain vivid. I would return to the newsroom to draw all the goals and the action from the games I had just witnessed. I don't know. I found that really interesting that anybody's able to do that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So in 1968, he moved to Mexico for more opportunities. And then just two years later, 1970, he moved to the great state of New Jersey. So the, this means that the story we just read, he'd only been in the U.S. about five years. He started out working in the U.S. on the Warren Black and White magazines. Uh, Creepy Number 39 had his first U.S. published work, uh, a story called The Water World. Again, some images from that are on his website. He did some work at Marvel Hara magazines and the short-lived Atlas and Seaboard line, where he worked on things like Iron Jaw and The Brute. He was recruited to D.C. where he drew Man Bat, as well as Secret Society of Supervillains, Cobra, Commandy, and the Freedom Fighters. In fact, the story we just read was his third published credit for DC, right after Man Bat number two and Cobra number one. He returned to Marvel where he worked on Avengers and Thor and Conan, but kept busy with both publishers. Sad part though, in 1985, he started to work his, reduce his workload, mainly to inking to care for his sick wife who ended up dying at age 42 later that year. He says he was unable to concentrate on pencils even for a time after her passing, which is why he has so many inker credits. If you scroll down his credits on Mike's Amazing World, you can see the stretch of time, which is almost exclusively inking. And his credits include inking on just about every DC title during this time period. Very, very prolific. By the late 80s and 90s, he had remarried and was able to pencil again and had a long run illustrating DC's version of Star Trek The Next Generation. And I remember very, I mean, I, bought, I have all, still have all those comics. He did likenesses of, you know, Picard and Riker and all those guys and, and really did a great job with that. Another notable run he had that I remember fondly was uh, the Black Canary series in Action Comics Weekly. He also, believe it or not, inked the Peacemaker limited series, which came out at about the same time as the first mini series of Star Trek The Next Generation. He didn't do <laughs> pencils for that, but he did ink it. By the late 90s, he had moved away mostly from comics, illustrating young adult classics like Governor's Travels and Jane Eyre and Invisible Man, stuff like that. But he also kept up the soccer drawing. In 99, I had the great pleasure of working for Soccer Junior Magazine to illustrate the life of the legendary Pele on 23 manually colored pages. Soccer was the main sport I played as a child, and it always brought me excitement, which is why I found the most joy working on those illustrations. While working with Soccer Junior Magazine, I collaborated with Sports Illustrated for Kids, doing many biographies in their Legends section. In 2009, he, he, returned, he relocated to Columbia, the native country of his second wife. And he has kept busy there, though. He returned to work on some Edgar Rice Burroughs characters, including Tarzan, the main character of his inspiration. He had a cover in 10 pages in Red Sonja number 100 if, uh, for Dynamite in 2014. And then he mentions on his website, in March of 2020, during the first pandemic in decades, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. 
I have to thank my dear Miriam for all the support she gave me to overcome cancer during this time. Without her, I do not think I would have been able to continue with my life's work and maintain the positive attitude that I have today and have maintained throughout the treatment. So he's a cancer survivor too at 83. And now he's, he's 84 this year. He also lists trading cards as one of his favorite things to illustrate. And many of them uh, he lists out on the website. And in 2021, he was inducted into the Joe Sinat Hall of Fame. And then just to summarize, according to Mike's Amazing Worlds, he's got 477 story credits as either a full artist or an inker, a terrific career. So I'm just glad to be able to share some of his life with our listeners. It's funny, like as I was listening to you, I Googled his name and DC art, clicking on the image, it's like, man, bad. like, oh my God, I have that issue. Yeah. Secret Society of Supervillains, which that is a great bonkers uh, storyline. I yeah, love absolutely. it. But like I saw these images, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have that issue. That's right. And it didn't come up in the search, but... I remember the Action Comics Weekly. Like, I loved that title. And I remember the Black Canary story. So, like, when you said that, oh, my gosh, yes. It's fun to check out this bad history. It was great to find out he was still with us. The other people that we profiled have have long since passed. So it was great to hear that and that he's in good spirits. So normally we'd take a trip now to Gabriel's Horn. But we're going to defer that to after the second story because both of those stories are new. So uh, we moved up Bat Branding to this spot. Bat Branding, we check out various ads and, and obviously text pages and letters pages to the extent they're there. The first one we want to talk about that both of us are eager to talk about is right after the Batgirl story, there's a double page spread where it's called A New Look for Robin. Sean, why don't you tell us what your initial thoughts are on this and I'll add mine. There are a lot of choices on this page. I don't want to be mean. I do love variant costume. Remember like, especially like Supergirl was super famous, of course, super famous for like changing her outfits. But also too, a little bit of it reminds me, although this is before like Dial H for Hero where like people would design their costumes. The thing is, I kind of think DC maybe like did these people dirty because they probably asked for ideas for Robin's costumes. And the people were probably like, oh, I'll design a costume. And they'll get an artist to make this look good. But they didn't. They used the people's drawings. And these are all kids. Come on. They, they don't give us the age. A lot of times on the Supergirl ones, they would say, you know, age nine, age 13. But they don't give us the age of any of the, any of the uh, people who illustrated these. But there are nine alternate Robin costumes here. Yeah, nearly all of them are red and green. And it's funny because it's like a cross between Captain 3D and the Vision. <laughs> the only two of them, though, kept to the bare legs. There are two people there that might have liked the thick thighs. And Janet Hetherington, I liked her outfit because she put him in bell bottoms and a red vest with the green sleeves. He looked uh, very 70s. That is very 70s right there. Oh, he's he's outside in the line waiting it, waiting to get into Gabriel's horn. There's no <laughs> two ways about that. I, he might have been in the background of Saturday Night Fever for all I know. Right uh, beside him, Michael Dunian from uh, Chatsworth, California has one. And you definitely get the inspiration for this costume <laughs> because it is a huge Batman silhouette going up to like his shoulder blades, literally like down the length of his body. <laughs> like this really would look, this would look more like a Batman costume <laughs> than a Robin costume. The one on the other side of him is got a great V-neck. Robert Aguilar uh, had a V-neck, big hairy chest, very 1970s. <laughs> So anyway, we'll put these costumes on the website for people to look at and you can comment and tell us your favorite. I want to reiterate, I am absolutely not making fun of any of these people's <laughs> drawing abilities. I, that is 
not my intention whatsoever. So please don't read this as me being catty or mean. And don't get me wrong. I can be catty and I can be mean. Not in this case, not in a new look for Robin, not at all. I should mention that there is another version of this coming up later in Batman Family or Detective, I can't remember where, where actually one of the entries was by Norm Brayfogle. That's a famous entry, I'm sidestepping a bunch of comments there, but we will get to that one when we get to it. Uh, let's move on to, to the next, just the next page, Sean. Justice for All includes children. And this is a full page ad from Neil Adams, beautifully drawn. You can't hear it in my voice, but there's an asterisk in that comment. This is a public service announcement. It's Superman with kids. And I absolutely love that. He says, justice for all includes children. In a democracy, every citizen has a duty to know and obey the law. I want you to know about the law so that you can be a good citizen. Look for me, learn about the law and make your community a better place to live. And this was a series of uh, basically PSAs where Superman would instruct kids and grownups about laws, laws generally pertaining like two kids. Now, however, just a page ago, I was saying that I was not being catty or mean to those artists for A New Look for Robin, and that is absolutely true. However, Justice for All Includes Children was drawn by a professional, the professionalist of professionals, Neil Adams. And I have to say, that kid in the lower right corner, who's like <laughs> beckoning me in, he looks like a child of Satan spawn. <laughs> I don't know if it's like the eyes or the lighting. I hope this wasn't like a kid that like came to the studio and modeled because he was not treated well. Every other person in this ad looks nice and friendly. It has to be the under camera looking up, I guess. Like, I'm sure this kid is a nice guy, but he looks so mean. Yeah, he's trying to smile, but I think it's the teeth. He looks a little vampirish. And we'll get to some of these ads later on and issues and and they are neat. Like it's it's definitely a great service, especially for kids to read. The next one is just on the bottom of the next page, superhero stick-ons. I love these. It's not present in this ad, but there was an ad for these superhero stick-ons that showed the stickers on a car. <laughs> and this is absolutely true. At the time of that ad, I told like my brothers and sisters, I want that on my car. I want that on my car. And like, they laughed like, oh, you're saying that now, but you wouldn't want that when you're grown up. But right now, oh my God, I would love to have any of these. Now I wouldn't do it on a sticker. Like I'd like to have them like airbrushed on my car. I totally <laughs> would love that. <laughs> the only reason why I wouldn't drive around is I think people would probably like, like egg my car or something like to be mean or like spray paint over it but i would love to drive around in a car with all of these like stock images of superheroes around next up is uh, sort of in the middle of the robin story there's the obligatory two-page limited collector's edition ad but this says it all superman versus the amazing spider-man Reserve your copy by ordering today. Everybody's familiar with the cover of Superman versus Spider-Man with Spidey standing on the top of, I guess that's the Empire State Building and, and Superman flying up to him. Fantastic. When I was a kid, this was highly exciting to me. I told this story on Treasury Cast, but I'll tell it quickly now. I, I was so excited. I knew it was coming out. When I was little, every week or two, we would my mom would bundle us all up and we'd go down to see my great-grandmother. And on the way, we would stop at this little store and she'd usually... So I was like, what, 10 years old, she would give me a dollar and I could run in and get a couple of comic books to keep myself occupied during that visit. Right. So I, I ran in this time and I looked and lo and behold, there was Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man. I was so excited. I grabbed it, but I only had one dollar. Right. And this is two dollars, which was an enormous amount. So I grabbed it. 
I ran out to the car uh, without paying, right? And said, mom, mom, look, look at, look at this. I, I, I need to get it. She said, wait, did you run out of there without paying? Well, yeah, I didn't have $2. Young man, you, she marched me back in there and paid for that. But I was very excited to get it. My copy to this day is well-read and tattered and you know, covers falling off and all that. But it was very interesting. I was reading this, um, knowing that story, I was reading my issue here and I come to this page and the coupon is cut out. I know I didn't order it from the coupon because I got it at this store. And then I realized I have doubles of a number of these Batman family issues. So this is the other, <laughs> my other, my other copy. So that's my history with Superman versus Spider-Man that I wanted to share. Anything you want to add? I mean, Sean, this, this is about as good as it gets on the treasury stuff. It, it Like the DC and Marvel, you know, coming together. Now I will admit Superman versus amazing Spider-Man. Like it's like an okay story. Now it's not as great as their first team up DC and Marvel, like doing the Wizard of Oz, <laughs> but the, the second one is never going to live up to that first. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely love Superman versus the amazing Spider-Man. Everything it represented at the time, it was just spectacular. It was stellar. Right after the Robin story, there is an ad for 204 Revolutionary War soldiers, only 225. There's an image of a bunch of colonial soldiers firing on British soldiers. And I was just wondering if anybody bought these. Does any of our listeners ever get these? I'm just curious because I've never seen them anywhere. I really think actually just the ad and the toys. I think it's really an example of a honk shoe kind of situation. You know, like this bores me tremendously. Like I lived in Spring Grove, Pennsylvania, which is maybe like 45 minutes, maybe an hour away from Gettysburg. So when we would go to Gettysburg and hear about these battles, I just could not have cared any <laughs> less. less. However, I loved going to Gettysburg because they have a place called Devil's Den. Devil's Den for me is like a bunch of rocks that you got to crawl through. Huge boulder rocks. Like it was oh, cool. The kid, it is it's like the best kind of jungle gym kind of thing. Cause you would be crawling through. And I don't I don't think these were like made for kids to crawl through. But <laughs> Probably wouldn't would be available or, today. Or or maybe I had bad parents that could that I'm not discounting that. But it was so much fun to crawl through those rocks at Devil's Den that I would sit through all the boring history stuff whenever we went to Gettysburg to get to crawl through the rocks at Devil's Den. And I hope that's still the case now. I was the nerd still listening to the history stuff, Sean. (laughs) After page five of the uh, Phantom General story, which we'll get to later, there was a half page ad for New big as life hangups with movable, movable arms and legs. And again, I've never seen any of these, but they look really cool. They're sort of, there's a kid there. I don't know. He puts them up on the wall or what. And he's sort of adjusting Batman's elbow and moving it. And so you can, you can imagine what they were like. The weird thing about these are they came in like a plastic bag with a cardboard header. Like So you had one? No, I didn't have one, but I saw these. But the weird thing is they folded it. So basically it was like the superhero's head and torso in a bag. And then the arms and legs <laughs> were like folded behind it. It's something you would see like on the oxygen channel today. It's horrible to see, but obviously like little kids aren't, aren't thinking. That. Now the next ad we're going to talk about is following the first act break in the Batman and elongated man story. It's kind of like a quarter page ad down at the bottom and it's the Marvel family and the world's mightiest project in the next issue of Shazam number 23. And that was on sale December 23rd. So talk about a stocking stuffer. I love Shazam. I love the Marvel family. I love absolutely everything about them. They can do no wrong, especially at at this time. 
Well, this is fun because on these old Silver Age stories, DC was still selling those half and quarter page ads that had yet eliminated that. So that's why they had to put things in. Like when we did Treasury Cast with Rob and there were a couple of those puzzles and stuff, you know, as yep. treasuries, you do that. Here, you just fill it with an ad. There's a, a very similar one at the bottom of page 18 of the uh, Batman elongated man story. A new superstar is here, Starman. That's the purple Starman, his one and only appearance until uh, James Robinson brought him back in the 1990s version of Starman. We'll always call out first issue special ads. Yeah. That's originally where Batman family was supposed to be. That's right. Now, the next ad we're going to talk about is have a super year. And this is a hero's world. I, I think it's a hero's world ad, although down at the bottom, it says NCG merchandise department two. So I actually don't know if that's the same thing, but it. I think it is. In your mind, if you see a Heroes World ad, it's exactly what this looks like. At the very top is the Super DC Calendar 1976 with fabulous Neil Adams art. I might have had this. I ha I have this thanks to eBay. I, did I didn't have it. At I would have loved it at the time. I didn't have it at the time. But thanks to eBay, I went back and got those classic DC calendars. And they are great. Now, Here's the part of the show where you can write in and tell me if I'm wrong. That's most of the show, Sean. Yeah, it really is. I only do it to boost up the comments page. <laughs> so each image is drawn by Neil Adams. And I think this is the calendar where in the date grid, each day is like a superhero birthday or something like that. If I'm wrong, please let me know which year it is because I'm getting my years mixed up. And then underneath that, we have the Batman glider plane, and that is sturdy styrofoam. <laughs> You'd be lucky if it made it to your house material. without being broken. <laughs> the sturdiest material there. <laughs> we have super stunt cycles from Penguin, Joker, and Batman. You can squirt uh, a squirt gun with Superman and Batman. Uh, Where the water comes out their mouth. Yes, yes, it is, yes. And you can get super clean teeth with Batman. Uh, it should be Superman. And down in the corner is like a treasured holy grail for people. It is the Super Friends car, which is actually a dune buggy, where Aquaman is driving, Robin is shotgun, and then standing on a platform, almost like they're going to wave at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, <laughs> is Superman and Batman. I got to know if Chris Franklin or anybody has this one, because that is a cool looking vehicle, without question. Who amongst us would not do unspeakable acts to achieve this? <laughs> The one area I was actually, only place I was a little disappointed in this uh, segment, Sean, is the last page of the Phantom General story. Again, one of these third quarter page ads is, for more thrills and excitement, be sure to get the next issue of Batman Family. And it's got nothing about next issue. It just, it just has the same stock image of Batgirl and Robin, a logo featuring a brand new Batgirl Robin team up and other astonishing adventures. It doesn't tell us anything. Not like the end of issue number two, where you know that it was going to be the story on the, about the dinosaurs. So I was a little disappointed that this gave us no information about what the next issue was going to be. Let me tell you a secret. Years ago, I worked at Borders as the community relations coordinator, which was the person in charge of events. So anytime we had to do whatever, like a Powerpuff Girls event or like a Goosebumps event, and we didn't know what we were going to do that month, it was always come in April and find out the super special thing we're going to do for you. You'll be amazed. Astrid, we don't know what we're going to do yet. <laughs> 
Now, on the next page, we get to the letters page, which is my favorite page of all the pages. And of course, we have the fetching image of Batgirl and Robin at the top. Now, the first letter is from George Takis. It's neat because this is where, in their reply, this is where we get the story of Batman Family Number 1 actually being a first issue special, which yep. we get went into depth with in the first issue. So it's great to read it there. This next letter, I'm actually going to save for third. Then the third letter is... Charles Jacques. And the great thing about this letter is he talks about like the Batgirl and Robin team, but he says, don't limit it to that. You know, have Batgirl and Commissioner Gordon, have Robin and Alfred, Batgirl and Batman. And I love this idea. And I wish they would have leaned a little bit more into that. We're going to get a lot, some of that when it expands, right, to Dollar Comic. But I agree. I think that was a good idea. The next letter, which was actually the second letter, I want to talk about specifically for uh, two reasons. The first one is the author, who is Bob Rohde, which we'll circle around to, says that, why are you shying away from obvious reprint material? More of the early Batgirl stories would be nice, as would Robin Tales from Star Spangled Comics and his later adventures in Batman. And actually, to this day, I still don't know that I've ever read any of the Robin solo adventures from Star Spangled Comics. I think they probably were collected. There are either one or two volumes of Robin archives that have some Star Spangled stories in them. I went through a phase where I bought a bunch of the archives and I didn't read them, but I've rediscovered a love of a lot of these golden age stories and I'd rather read them than most other stuff at this point. I just haven't gotten to the Robins yet. But yeah, the, there are some stories. I'll loan it to you when I uh, when we get together in person if you want to check it out. No problem. Ooh, all right. now, now I'm glad I brought it up. Yeah, me too. Now the second part I want to bring it. So this letter was written by someone named Bob Rohde from Columbia, Missouri. I don't know. So this is an invitation to correct me if I am wrong. But there is an author, like a published author named Robert Rohde, who wrote books like Fag Hag, Closet Case, Drag Queen. So you're probably seeing a theme there. And what really makes me think this probably is the same person is he wrote a book called What They Did to Princess Paragon. And basically, it's a story of a comic book art. And obviously, Princess Paragon is, quote unquote, Wonder Woman. It's just, a, you know, like a, a fake version of Wonder Woman. And bring her, they bring her back to publishing because she's not doing well. And he reveals that she's a lesbian. And this upsets a comic book fan. And I have all of these books. And I know that the author of these books went on to write Codename Knockout. And Codename Knockout has like her uh, sidekick who's Go-Go Fiasco, I think. So I'm thinking this is the same person. Well, you ought to hit him up. We, hey, we can't be uh, the only ones on the network not getting celebrity guest stars. Basically, I'm inviting all of our bat kinfolk to do my homework for me and find out. Like, I'm almost positive this would have to be the same person, right? Did his um, biography say anything about him growing up in Missouri or anything? I looked at the book flaps. This idea dawned on me maybe like 10 minutes before we started recording. So maybe tomorrow I will do a little bit more research. Uh, if any of ours know, Bob Robert, if you're listening, please call. I'd love to talk to you. You have a letter published. I thought you were going to go to the answer. Bob Rizakis answers him because he's asking about why don't you reprint some of these old stories? And he says, the problem with many of those old stories is some of the art and or writing is not up to the high standards we have today. We know a lot of that old stuff is not necessarily politically correct, but there really was a theory. I've read this in several books about the industry that, you know, a lot of the golden age art was too crude 
for the quote modern audiences of the 70s and 80s and there really was a, a feeling of that and a sort of evidenced right there in that kind of comment and the next one we're going to talk about is a beloved hostess ad starring shazam captain marvel who i love although this time he is not chilling for twinkies which i am told fine he is talking about hostess cupcakes he's in the studio uh some crooks are getting away with the hostess cupcakes he shazams through the ceiling and comes down on them and gives the cupcakes back to the kids. So I know we have an almost regular segment in our comments about Twinkies, but now <laughs> we can add hosted cupcakes to it. All right. So I think that's it. You want to move on to a second story, Sean? We do. Before we get started on the second story, let's welcome a special guest to Batman Family Reunion, Fire and Water Network all-star cousin Chris Franklin. Chris, what brings you to Batman Family Reunion, but more importantly, what dish did you bring? Oh, I brought. Uh, let's see. What uh, What did Cindy call this? I think this is this is some kind of casserole. I don't know exactly. I it's it's called bat casserole. I don't bat know. If you, I don't know if you want to eat it, but it smells absolutely delicious. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here. We're thrilled to have you. Been- redecorated the place really well it's uh it looks it looks wonderful and you know i'm really excited uh you know because i mean i don't need that now but back you know when i was in my younger days uh, since i'm from kentucky uh family reunions is where we uh, you know met our significant others so you know <laughs> <laughs> well in in addition to that story Tell us, how did you join the Batman family? What got you into the book? My first issue of Batman family wasn't really Batman family. It was after it had merged with Detective. So that was, mm-hmm. I think, Detective Comics number 47 with that great Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Crazy his name. Poster-like cover of the terrific trio. I think that was the first one I picked up. It had the one and only appearance of Steve Ditko's The Odd Man, that DC explosion strip that got one story printed anyway. That was uh, the first issue I got that that had the Batman family. I don't think they still were using the logo, but... Yeah, I think they got rid of the logo by then, yeah. But, uh, my love for the actual comics comes from Sean's beloved DC Digest because I first read the story we're going to cover in Best of DC number 20. March Mm -hmm. Christmas with the superheroes but what cemented the title and the concept of the book for me was another digest the best of DC number 51 which was from August 1984 that's the Batman family issue it reprinted a few stories from the series as well as a few Denny O'Neill Neil Adams classics I think at some point I realized okay there was an actual Batman family title and then not a few years after that I started making trips to comic shops and I began picking up uh, issues. And so the first one I actually bought was Batman Family Number 8 with Catwoman's Daughter on the cover. Ah, yes, yes. We'll be getting to that one pretty soon. The copy Catgirl crimes, yeah. Now, long-time listeners know the answer to this, but to make it officially official, Chris, who is your favorite member of the Batman Family, even if they never appeared in the Batman family series proper, but I think we know the answer. Uh, yeah, my, my favorite actually is is Robin. Maybe not, you know, it's I, I love the Earth 2 Robin, but but I actually love any version of Dick Grayson. Depending on what day of the week it is, I might like Batman better than Robin, but I, I think over the years, what they've done with Batman in modern comics makes me like Robin that much more. So <laughs> it retroactively makes me like Robin more. Uh, and I, when I was a kid, I did want to be Robin. I, I couldn't be Batman, but I could be Robin. And these 70 stories informed me that after high school, 
you just go to college. So I, I never wavered from that notion and never thought I shouldn't go to college when I got out of high school. So <laughs> did you get into Hudson U? I didn't get into Hudson U, no, unfortunately. Although oh, okay. it's a tough place to get into. Yeah, it is. I, I don't know if you guys watch Superman and Lois at all, but they're constantly bringing up New Carthage on there. Mm-hmm. It, it's really strange. And I just keep, I was like, that's where Hudson University is. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where those boys will go. Maybe. It might be where they send them. Yeah. I just hope they don't. Well, by then they might be legal drinking age then. But, you know, <laughs> those kids don't waste too much. I know at David A. Scudieres is going, oh, stop talking about that. But it just bothers. I think uh, Solo Cup, like the Red Solo Cup, I think that's a sponsor of the show. <laughs> I think you're right. Okay. Well, we are happy to have you here. And today we are going to talk about Robin's White Very Christmas. And that, of course, is starring Robin. It is a nine-page story written by Bob Rosakis, penciled by Jose Delbo. Inker is Vince Caletta. And as we talked about, it was later reprinted in the Best of DC Digest, number 22, my beloved digests. And it also appeared in Robin, the Bronze Age Omnibus from 2020. Very Robin's very white, very Christmas, very. When you think of Christmas, three locations spring to mind immediately. The North Pole, Bedford Falls, and Hudson University, home of the HU Sidewalk Santas. Our story begins as Dick Grayson and Lori Elton pick up a hitchhiker on a cold and snowy day. Now, unlike my hitchhiking experiences, (laughs) everything goes smoothly because the hitchhiker is actually Frank McDonald, Hudson University's security chief, and they are on their way to the student center before heading out to collect money for gifts for the needy. In order to be authentically Christmas, they trade in Dick's VW van bus for a one-horse open sleigh in a mounting blizzard. That is commitment to a theme. They dash on over to the RNS department store, laughing all the way. Well, not so much laughing as complaining about the snow and hoping it doesn't derail their holiday plans, especially Dick's trip back home to Gotham. Dick then gets cold-cocked from behind and winds up seeing a ghost of Christmas, immediate past, hightailing it from the scene. Literally hightailing it because he stole the horse-drawn sleigh to make his getaway. Lori and Frank show up to find Dick gone, and then Robin swoops down to let them know that he's freezing in his Speedo. But a quick run around the block not only warms him up, but also helps him figure out sneaky Santa's next move. Our story then moves back to the student center, just in time for our nefarious St. Nick to stick up the charity. My Christmas present arrives when Robin swings in and shows off his thick thighs while foiling each of the enemy elves. An hour and a half after that, Dick comes back to Hudson U and tells Lori that he's not gonna make it back to Gotham. Lori tells Dick that she can stay with him. Clever girl. But Bruce, Alfred and Aunt Beard, I I mean, Aunt Harriet, show up to spend time with Dick, Lori, and her family. Then we all get the greatest present ever that we could hope to imagine for, because after this story, Aunt Harriet was never seen or heard from again. And to all, a good night. Tell us, Chris, what did you think about this story? You guys think Aunt Harriet got run over by a reindeer walking home from our house Christmas Eve or something? I don't know. (laughs) 
that is the only way I will accept Aunt Harriet. I like this story. Is it earth shattering? No. Does it change Robin's life forever? No. Is it entertaining? Yes. It's a very entertaining, fun story. I mean, it's very quickly, you know, there's not much of a huge plot. I, I don't know why Julia Schwartz, it's because Julia Schwartz is the editor that he wants us to think there's an actual mystery going on. Like, did you notice, reader, what Robin did? Well, yeah, you'd have to be pretty, pretty out of it. I had a note for that too, Chris. I'm like, there's not really a mystery here. I'm like, where's the mystery? But other than that, I mean, and, and I'm with you guys. I, when I first read this as a kid, I had not read any reprinted Silver Age stories with Anne Harriet. So I had thought up to that point, Anne Harriet was a creation of the TV show. So her appearing here was like, well, what, what? Anne Harriet was in the comic books? So yeah, and, and this is apparently her final appearance. She did, never made it out of New Carthage alive. So, <laughs> And what did you think of it, Cousin Paul? Well, I like it too. It's a cute story. I, what I remember from when I first read it is, of course, the ending. Dick is disappointed he can't get to Gotham. But it's nice that they all come up and everybody's singing Christmas carols around the piano at the end. So I do remember that very fondly. I like the service project that they're doing for the kids. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more Christmas than the first story, Sean. <laughs> Perfect segue into what I thought of the story. I love the story. I love Christmas stories. I have every DC collection of, now, I don't have every DC Christmas story, but I have every collected edition that DC has ever put out of Christmas stories. I'm a sucker for a Christmas story. And exactly what you said, I love the story because if you look at every single page of this story, you can't help but know this is a Christmas story. The quote unquote Batgirl Christmas story that we just talked about a little bit ago, you could go for pages and pages and not realize that that's even set at Christmas. But this I love. And it is funny because the first time I read it, it was in the digest. Now, here is the mystery of this story. Because in the actual comic book version of the story, it's listed as Robin's White Very Christmas, <laughs> which thankfully they fixed that for the reprint and it does read correctly. So yeah, like beat by beat. I don't even know, kind of like you said, it's not really a big mystery. So I guess we can go beat by beat if you want, but I don't know that that matters. It's snowing. They pick up Frank McDonald and they're going on their way to the charity, which you said, I love the charity aspect of that. Mm -hmm. And the Student Center Christmas Eve, it's a happening place. It sure is. This must be like a huge, huge deal for the community. Mm -hmm. I do like that. I liked how Robin shows up and Lori's like, ooh, it's Robin. <laughs> like, yeah. I wonder how Dick felt about that. It was good that they usually don't acknowledge that he's cold, but he, he's like, hey, I could give you a line that I got thermal underwear on. But yeah, no, I'm freezing. <laughs> so I, I like That's that. Like one of the first references I ever saw to the TV series because bat thermal underwear where Batman famously <laughs> says that to Mr. Freeze. That's Bob Rosakis actually commenting on the on the TV show. It's really weird because Rob and I had recently done an episode of For All Mankind where Robin and the other super friends are under sea, you know, going to Atlantis with Aquaman to show the Wonder Twins around. And Robin has a very nice diving slash space suit with long sleeves and long pants. So it's like, could Jose Delbo not draw him in in like actual winter gear? I mean, it, I guess he's moving around enough. He says that, but it, it, it does. Even as a kid, I'm like, Robin should really have a winter costume. <laughs> he goes swimming in long pants and runs around in a blizzard in a Speedo. <laughs> I respect it. 
What'd you guys think of the art? I like actually think this art's pretty good. I know Jose Delbo is kind of a, a journeyman mm -hmm. artist. I know our buddy Rob Kelly, who I mentioned earlier, wasn't a big fan of having him as an instructor at the Kubert School. Yeah, I think he gave him a bad grade or something, so Rob doesn't like him. But <laughs> I always think of him as drawing Wonder Woman forever. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course, Vince Coletta is a good artist, a very good comic artist, but who often didn't do very good work because he was in a hurry. And some people think possibly tied to the mob. He had other uh, other concerns than, you know, having to draw much background so he'd erase it. But here, it looks great. And I love this splash page where Delbo has put the panels in the presence Robin's holding. Yeah. One thing, speaking about the art, I love on page three how almost the whole page is basically silent. The sleigh is going by a traffic cop. And Dick hands him a candy cane, and he smiles about that. Then they're by the chimney, that's actually the coin collector. And a gust of wind blows off a man's hat. Dick is going to give the hat back to the man, but he's like, he just mimes, puts some money in the chimney. <laughs> I, lo I love silent panels like that. I, I just think it's really nice. Yeah, it is, it is really nice. And I got to say, I I'm sure you think Dick's fetchingly drawn in, in, this, in this story, Sean. <laughs> But as you said, but I think Lori's, you know, very fetching. Lori looks great. Yeah. And whatever happened to Lori, you guys will, well, I guess you guys will cover that. Did she just fall off the face of the earth? You know, when he met the Starfire, did he just forget all about Lori or what? I would. I was going to mention this in the end. I am terrified that they are going to bring back Lori Elton or Aunt Harriet, and they're going to be some deranged killer <laughs> that one by one is picking off the lesser members of the family in a 12-issue series that <laughs> is part of a reboot. I am I don't even like Aunt Harriet, but I don't want them to do that to her. I am terrified that they're going to bring one or two of the both of them back. Yeah, that's true. I can see that. I can see that happening. And I mean, there is a story that comes out. I don't want to spoil things for you guys, but there is a story about Lori's past that uh, is in a later issue of Batman Family that's actually a pretty cool story drawn by Jim Aparo that gets into her past and she has some connections to some crazy people. Yeah, I vaguely recall that. I'm not reading ahead. I'm holding back. Well, no, sorry. Sorry to spoil it. No, little, that's okay. It, I think that's great. It's uh, it's it's actually a pretty good. I think it's a Jerry Conway story. So yeah, they could, they could connect all that together, but let's hope they don't. I don't want Lori coming back like that. But yeah, I would have forgot about her with the uh, Starfire too. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's funny, like, we're not even really talking about this story because there isn't really much of a story. Robin gets knocked out. He wakes up and remembers who knocked him out and then goes to the student center and knocks people out. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a knockout of a Christmas story. <laughs> the fist that's punching Dick in the face when he gets attacked, it looks like Ben Grimm punched him. That is a huge... <laughs> It's clobbering time for real. I mean, he just got plastered, yeah. And the one thing is the the, the bad Santa never looks the same from one page to the next. That's the one weird thing. I'm like, who is this guy? You know, and, and the coloring's kind of strange too. So that, that that is one thing. It's almost like, I don't know if they thought there were like multiple bad Santas, but there's really like one bad Santa as Robin's taking the goons out. So I, I always thought that was a little confusing, especially because you had Frank McDonald already as Santa. And I know he's in other Robin stories, but the way he's drawn here, he looks a little shady. <laughs> Smoking that cigar, and he just looks like he might be a little on the on the take or something. Thankfully, they never went down that alley. And the the other really cool art bit that I love is on page seven. You can actually like see the cord that's attached to Robin's belt that's helping him swing. 
And as he's swinging, he's going through some holly. And then the holly kind of goes into the next panel. I think that's cool. I think the candy cane bit in the lower corner of that, I think that's cool. Let me ask you guys a question. When I was rereading this story this time, I didn't, I've never noticed this before, but Dick's all down because he can't go home to Gotham. But then Lori's like, well, you could stay here with us. And then it seems like Dick's, hey, that's the better idea. (laughs) And then Bruce, Alfred, and Aunt Harriet show up. And then you kind of get the impression in that one panel, oh, uh, I'm er, surprised, all right. And he kind of looks like he's looking at Lori like, damn, man, you know, we were... (laughs) You are exactly right. On the previous page, because he says, come on, we'll stop at my room and phone Bruce to tell him the uh, sad news. And they, they wouldn't have added that, uh... If it really was sad news. Right. And yeah, the look he gives Lori is, oh, I'm surprised, all right. (laughs) Yep. Dick had even taken his Robin cycle out of the back of the van and everything. (laughs) (laughs) So the very last panel, you see everybody gathered around the organ and they're, they're all singing Jingle Bells. And that makes me think of the story, I think, is it The Silent Night of the Batman? where he's at the police headquarters and they're all singing Christmas carols. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It just makes me go being the justice league, you know, the JLU cast guy. It makes me, I know what Batman singing sounds like because of, you know, my blue. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. <laughs> no, he, he has to alter his singing voice. Otherwise everyone would know. Jingle bells, jingle bells of vengeance. <laughs> And like you said with Aunt Harriet, I actually did something I never, ever thought I would do. I did research and listeners what? like when I, what? When, I, when I say I did research, it probably means I went to Mike's Amazing World because that's pretty much 90% of my research. Yep. And as much as I'm not a fan of Aunt Harriet and I'm not, she only made 20 appearances. Hmm. I thought it was going to be much, much more than that. But no, it's only... We've one. already seen her twice, right, Sean? And exactly. we had her in the... Um, A replay. With yeah. a clue master. Yep. yep. Twice in four issues. Yeah. Now, luckily, this is the only appearance in new Batman family stories that she made. A bunch in Detective and Batman, World's Finest a couple. One appearance each in Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane. Now, the listeners can't see me, but I'm taking a bow for doing all of that research. Well done. Well done, Sean. <laughs> Thank Mike Voles, too, for doing the Mike's Amazing World, <laughs> which we all lean on him. We, I think we should all, I don't, I don't know, we should do something for that guy because he's... He, He's done so much late. He's invited on the show anytime he wants to come on. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Okay, back cousins. Do you guys have anything else to add to this Christmas conversation? I just want to thank you guys for letting me stop by. I've always been a a fan of this story, and you guys are doing a fantastic job on this show, so it was fun to join you. And I just like these Robin stories when he was in college. I I think Robert Zakis was the Chuck Dixon of the uh, <laughs> of the, the late 70s, 70s. and uh, he doesn't get enough credit you know yeah did he write like deep earth like i said earth shattering stories no but they were very entertaining yeah charming entertaining yeah who did love the answer man column right yeah so good good on you bob rizakis yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> we thank you chris thanks for jumping in on the story and joining us at the reunion do you want to remind the folks at home what you've got cooking these days in the podcasting world sure i'm always on the fire and water podcast network i jump in guest on other shows but primarily uh, my wife cindy and i do jlu cast where we cover the justice league unlimited and now we're in the more fast-paced heavy metal guitar you know just <laughs> unlimited who doesn't love that? I mean, it's just, it's, it, in my opinion, it's the the best version 
of the DC universe. Certainly the best version in media, I think. So yeah, it's the culmination of the DCAU. We're there. Join us. We're having a great time. I'm super, super jazzed to be covering this version of the series. It was all leading up to this. So I'm really excited. And would you like to make your first announcement regarding Superman movie minute for Superman four, the quest for peace? <laughs> you know, you think Rob and Shag have lawyer problems. Well, Rob's or when it comes to Superman four, he's like, Chris, you cannot say anything about Superman four legally. <laughs> no, no kidding. We will seriously, we will seriously do one episode. <laughs> that's all you get people. That's all. That's more than enough. It's me too. Yeah. That's all. That's all we're going to do. <laughs> Well, I was very happy that you came, but I was more happy that you brought Cindy's casserole. Because let me tell you, that was delicious. Mm-hmm. On your way out, just make sure to drop your dirty dishes in the trash can, Chris. But uh, we really appreciate you coming by, man. Have a great day. Thanks for having me, guys. And uh, be sure to invite me next year, you know, when you have the reunion again. You know. Thanks, Chris. Okay. I guess it was great to have Chris drop by, but man, I lost a ton of money by betting against him in the horseshoe. That man throws a mean ringer. Yeah, boy, he, he, he took everybody to the cleaners for that. But back to work for the two of us. In this segment, we take a trip to Gabriel's Horn, the hip happening hangout for the Teen Titans in the 1970s. We talk about the most 1970s moment in the Batgirl and or Robin story. And in this case, we have something from each story. I'll start off. I'm going to talk about Batgirl. And Paul kind of alluded to it, but Bab's 1970s outfit, all white, it really is Elvis, TCB, taking care of business without the, Cap- <laughs> without the Captain Marvel Jr. cape trailing behind her. <laughs> yeah, she's really looking good in that outfit. What's amazing is that the dark Batgirl outfits underneath, couldn't see the gray underneath the white. <laughs> And, and the green scarf tied around her neck. That's 70s perfection. The other one from the Batgirl story, which I kind of talk about, all of her motorcycle antics, especially like being on top of the car, every single episode of Chips and the Troops <laughs> of Hazard, that stunt could have been in every single episode of those TV shows. In the Robin story, they picked up a hitchhiker. Well, that's something you wouldn't do today. (laughs) But instead, what I ended up picking was the fact that there was a blizzard going on and activities were still happening. Whereas today, everything gets canceled even if they think there's going to be an inch of snow. So that would be my 1970s Gabriel's Horn moment. That is great. That is very good. I think I'm ready to move on to the third story. How about you, Sean? Absolutely. Our third story is Batman meets Fat Man. And it's starring Batman, Robin, And Fat Man, which is his first and only appearance, it's an incredible six pages. The writer is Bill Finger. The penciler is Sheldon Mordorf. Inker is Charles Paris. And this was later reprinted in Batman number 113 from 1958. Our story opens up with Fat Man, real name unknown, but we know it's not Kevin Smith from his podcast. The newest Gotham City crime fighter to join the ranks of Batman, Batwoman, and Mystery Man to foil some criminal ne'er-do-wells. He's not doing a good job of it because he trips, misses the mark with a batarang throw, and can't find his gas capsule from his utility belt. But all the while, we hear people laughing at him. Well, that's because Fat Man is really a circus clown. Now, it's never said which circus he works for, but we can assume it's not the Haley Circus because later on in the story, I'm pretty sure Robin would have made mention of it. I'm guessing it's the Hill Brothers Circus because that way I get to talk about Dead Man, my favorite comic book character. Yes, even more than Robin and Batgirl for the next 20 minutes. You see, Dead Man is really Boston Brand, a circus aerialist who was murdered by oh, a one-armed... Sean, Sean, back on point. 
All right, all right. At the exact same time that Fat Man tells his audience that his antics are a loving spoof of the crime fighter that he admires, just like my synopsises, Batman and Robin are hanging out at the docks again to catch the Red Mask Gang red-handed. Unfortunately, the RMG hightail it away in a motor launch, and since the first Batman movie wasn't in production yet, the Cape Crusaders didn't have a Batboat yet. The only option was a sloop. Hang on, sloopy, sloopy, hang on. And that's not going to cut it. So the dynamic duo cut out to the Hill Brothers Circus to keep an appointment for a charity show. Fat Man is thrilled when Batman tells him that he is a great clown, but Fat Man wishes he could be a great crime fighter and ride in the Batmobile. Well, Batman can make one of those things come true, and while riding around town, a call comes in that the Red Mask Gang has returned to the docks. Batman talks to a young Cappy Dick, and listeners, be sure to tell me if you get that reference, who tells him that the RMG were looking for something that wasn't there. <sighs> the story of my high school crush. And Batman realizes that the sloop, we come on the sloop, John B, my grandfather and me, that the sloop was there earlier isn't there now. Young Cappy Dick tells Batman that the sloop, sorry, I'm out of sloop songs, was rented out for a big new movie promotion. God, I hope it's not some dumb, horribly dark Robert Pattinson crap. Fat Man is thrilled because he realizes that he'll now be able to help fight crime just like his hero. His hopes are soon dashed because Batman tells him to stay in the Batmobile so he doesn't get hurt or killed or even worse, get locked in a horse stable. When they all arrive, they see that the movie being promoted by the use of the sloop Sloop, Sloop Badu, Sloop Badu, Sloop Badu, Bad, oh, never mind, is a movie entitled Crime Cruise. By the way, when I Googled Crime Cruise movie, Minority Report came up because Tom Cruise tries to prevent future crimes. Anyway, a fight occurs between Batman and Robin and the Red Mask Gang, and our heroes are hurt. No, worse, they're killed. No, worse than that, they are locked in a horse stable. But luckily, Fat Man uses his powers of comic clownery to put the kibosh on the criminals. What did you think, Paul? Well, I think your synopsis was longer than the story, Sean. No, I'm just teasing. It's funny, when I read this as a kid, I thought Fat Man was a bigger deal. Like, I thought he was a recurring character, but this is only... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> He's very good natured. One of the things I know in one of the comments from a previous episode, Martin Gray asked us about the sort of reintroductions at the top of the page. There's actually a poem for Fat Man, uh, that one that I thought we could read. Who is the cape crime fighter who makes felons shake? Who is the mantled manhunter who makes hoodlums quake? Who? Nobody but Fat Man. That's who you know, it goes on from there. So nice little poem for Fat Man. It sounds like a, like a filmation cartoon yeah, introduction. Yeah. Exactly. I love how he just tags along in the Batmobile. There's a great on the one, two, third page in the middle of the page. He's stuffed in the middle, literally, of the Batmobile. (laughs) They like to squeeze people in that Batmobile. It's just either as big or as small as it needed to be for the whatever the story required. Remember Mystery Man getting stuffed in there with uh, Batman and Robin. One thing that I am amazed by for this time period, I'm just surprised that they don't really make fun of him. 
Yeah. I mean, other than the word fat man, really like, so the battering kind of bounces off of his belly, but even that's not really like offensive as it could be for this time period. I kind of remembered this from reading it when I was a kid, but not really. So when the time came to read this story, I thought, oh man, like how, how am I going to deal with this? Because I know it's going to be horrible. He's going to be lazy and sweating and not being able to do anything. But other than the character's name, he really is brave. He goes out and he's foiling criminals by sticking to his shtick. Like, I'm, I have respect for Fat Man. I do too. I love how he throws the hammer and the, the crooks say he accidentally smashed the lock. Well, I, I, I kind of think it wasn't an accident. I'd like to think that it wasn't an accident, that he, he, is, he enables Batman and Robin to escape. So I agree. It's very good natured. That's the word that I thought. It's a cute, fun, good natured story. Thor is a god and uses his hammer. <laughs> Batman's a regular mortal and uses the hammer and had perfect aim for this lock. I'm really impressed with the story. I, I like it. I wish we would have seen him again. Well, and Batman even gives him credits on the mm -hmm. last page. He says, that was smart thinking, Fat Man. Robin and I guessed that you were only pretending to be clumsy so you could get the gang off guard. And he said, I had to do something. And after all, I don't know anything about crime fighting. And Batman's like, hey, you're wrong. Fat Man, the best way to fight criminals is to outsmart them. And you proved you know plenty about that. And that made him very proud. My only complaint, Give him a name. <laughs> <laughs> now, we move on to the Bat Timeline. In this segment, we are going to take a look at the other titles that DC published this month and what the rest of the Batman family was doing at that time. And this is all thanks to Mike's amazing world of DC Comics in December of 1975. We're going to cover the Batman family appearances first, and then we'll go on to our newsstand. So first up is Batman number 273. It's got a striking red cover. Again, Ernie Chan where Batman is strapped to the front of a cannon. Unfortunately, that one is not on DC Universe. There's a story apparently called The Bank Shot the Baffled Batman. <laughs> and then the next one is The Brave and the Bold, number 125. And it stars Batman and The Flash in a story called Streets of Poison. It's a very dramatic cover because at the very front of the image, you have The Flash knocked out down on the ground and a tiger. Um, my printing is very bad, so I'm assuming the tiger is mauling his shoulder open. I don't know if that's really true. You have the criminal behind him, and Batman is swooping in against the moonlight to save Barry's shoulder. Detective number 457, an important one for me. It is the classic story, There Is No Hope in Crime Alley yeah. by Denny O'Neill and Dick Giordano. First appearance of Leslie Tompkins. At the time, she was just a kind old lady who was kind to Bruce that night. And obviously her legend grew over time and really became part of the Batman family and knows his secret and everything. I have a copy of this signed by Denny O'Neill. Actually, the first comic I ever got signed, I was at a show. I'm thinking this is sort of early mid nineties. I don't remember exactly when or what show, but I was at a show and I saw he was there and he didn't have a line. I didn't have anything for him to sign. So I'm like, what book do I know he wrote that wouldn't be too expensive that I could get? And it was this one. So I went, found somebody who got it for five bucks or something, and I got him to sign it. Now it's an old fashioned one's on the inside front cover to Paul from Denny O'Neill, which is great. The other thing that's cool about this issue to me is they adapted this story, as you may know, into an episode of Batman, the animated series. That one's called Appointment in Crime Alley. That episode was actually written by Jerry Conway. Sean, you may remember the Warner Brothers stores. I used to have one across the street from my office. Again, this would have probably been late 90s, early 2000s. 
And I have a cell that I got there, Batman kneeling on the ground about to place a rose with Leslie Tompkins standing right next to him. I'm looking at it right now. It's a special thing for me. Oh, by the way, the cover is an iconic cover, right? Batman sort of outlines by Dick Giordano, you know, the haunting story, the murder that created Batman. And back in the day, it wasn't like every human on earth knew Batman's origin story. They had to repeat the origin for all these superheroes from time to time. So they were coming up with new ways to tell it. It's a fantastic story. And I can't imagine that we have to recommend Batman the animated series to- <laughs> I can't imagine but if this is your first exposure to any kind of Batman thing absolutely I just think it's a cornerstone I think it's one of the best things that has ever happened to the Batman in his publishing history his character history the next book we're going to talk about is the Joker number six the story is called Sherlock stalks the Joker. The cover is fantastic. Instead of all those covers we love where the heroes and villains are running in towards each other, you have the Joker and Sherlock Holmes. They're on opposite sides of a wall. And each of them are saying, aha, you're my prisoner at last. So it's neat. I love those Joker books. They're just so wonderfully bonkers. Like it's it's just such fun. Next up, Justice League, number 128. Yet another Ernie Chan cover. It's very prolific from the covers for DC at this time, where Hawkman is coming into the Justice League meeting room, carrying Wonder Woman, who has just rejoined the Justice League after she was readmitted in her own title. She went through those 12 labors and in Wonder Woman number 222, I think she was admitted back to Justice League. This is her first adventure back with the League. What's funny is I reread it last night in DC Universe. All the Justice League wanted to give up. They're like, I don't care anymore. And Wonder Woman's like, huh, I just rejoined. So that's the, the hook for the story. The last one for the Bat timeline specific is World's Finest Comics number 236. And it is a story entitled Killers Come in All Sizes, and it stars Superman and Batman, of course, and The Atom. Mm. And the cover is wonderful. It's similar to The Brave and the Bold, where we have the hero lying at the bottom of the cover, although The Atom isn't unconscious. He knows that Superman is about to smash him, and Batman is saying, Superman, stop. He says, I've got to. Superman is saying, I've got to smash Adam into nothingness. So that's fantastic. Like, what, what a great eye-catching cover. So, Paul, we each have an allowance of $5, and we are going to pick the comic books that we are going to purchase this month. And this month, you're going to go first. First one I have on my list is Adventure, number 444, with a fabulous Jim Apero cover where Aquaman is fighting both the shark and the ocean master. Right next to that is All-Star Comics number 59. That's the second appearance of the new Justice Society. They still calling it the Super Squad with Power Girl and those guys and Jerry Conway with art by the underrated Rick Estrada with Wally Wood inks. Some good art in those stories if you've never read them. Continuing in the A's, Amazing Spider-Man number 154 was a monthly buy for me. And this is the one where the Sandman gets his new outfit. So instead of the green striped t-shirt, which he basically wears all the time, including in the movies, he had this funky red and black with a sort of a cow. So almost like a kid flash like cow, but green. I don't particularly like that outfit. Next on my list with Astonishing Tales, number 34, starring Deathlock. I did not buy this when I was a kid. Rich Buckler, who was a great artist, was also doing some writing at the time. And he did the plot and the pencils for these, this storyline and the script was Bill Mantlo and it's since been collected and Deathlock got very confusing there was time travel stories this is sort of before that uh, that's one if I could go back in time I would get DC Superstars number one, starring the Teen Titans. And this is how I read a lot of these early stories. I love the DC Superstars run because that was reprints of lots of 
fun stories. And there were two different full lengths Teen Titans stories in this one. Fantastic Four, number 168, where the thing is turned back into Ben Grimm and he's standing by and he's, oh no, I've been replaced by Luke Cage Power Man. <laughs> and I think this is my first exposure to Luke Cage. Four Star Spectacular, number one. Yet So DC is pumping out these reprint volumes. Four Star Spectacular, number one, starred Superboy, Wonder Woman, Hawkman, and The Flash. For, so four different stories, which was pretty neat. Superboy seemed to be the biggest draw, but he was always my least favorite of all those four. And then how can we not talk about Freedom Fighters, number one? Jerry Conway, yet another Rick Estrada. I love the Freedom Fighters. Crazy stuff happened in this. A crossover with Secret Society of Supervillains was just as crazy. Marvel Team Up. 43 had Spidey and Dr. Doom, which was actually the third part of a story written by Bill Mantlo, conclusion where Vision and Scarlet Witch were the first two parts of the stories. You got Superboy and the Legion 215 with the Mike Grell Disco Legion. And then finally, Superman number 297 called Superman Never, Clark Kent Forever by Elliot Magan and Carrie Bates with art by Kurt Swan. In the cover, it's funny. Always fun where they separate the hero from the identity. Superman's standing around watching while Clark is getting beaten up. So what's going on there? Got to open the book to find out. I think it added up to like $4.20, but I'd have to go back and check. How about you, Sean? It's no wonder we are back, kinfolk, because many of the same titles are showing up. So my first one is Action Comics number 457, and it's the Superman story. Superman, you're not Clark Kent, and I can prove it. There's a backup story. Story with Green Arrow and Black Canary called Flight of the Nutty Kid. And if you think you don't know this issue, you do know <laughs> this issue because you've seen the cover. It is a little boy crying into his pillow with Superman behind him taking off his shirt. The 70s were a more innocent time. <laughs> the next book on my list is All-Star Comics with the Super Squad, which you talked about. My next issue is The Amazing Spider-Man, number 154, which you talked about. I will add, surprisingly for me, I love Super superhero outfits. They're superheroes. Supervillains, they should be dressed up. However, that Sandman outfit is horrible. It's horrific. The next one is a repeat DC Superstars with the Teen Titans. No Archie book for you this week? Oh, hold on. All right, all right. Sorry, there's like 10 Archie books right in a row there. So I figured you'd had one of them. No, but we'll swing around to something similar. So my next one is a curiosity. So it's Foom number 12. Now, obviously this would not have been on the newsstand. And at the time, I would not have purchased Foom, but I would now retroactively. And I actually don't have any Foom issues. I do have a couple of Amazing World of DC Comics. Cool. I had a subscription to it. And then I since picked up the handful that I didn't have. But I never had Foom. I wish I could read some of that stuff now. I would like to investigate Foom. I'm very scared that I go, I'm going to go on eBay. And the cheapest one is going to probably be like $383 or something like that. I don't think they're cheap. So the next one is Four Star Spectacular, which Paul talked about. However, when he said the story featured the Flash. He forgot to mention that it's the Golden oh, Age that's Flash. Right. And I love the Golden Age Flash. And I think this is one of those ones they redrew because the art wasn't up to par, right? Ah. Oh, did I steal your thunder? I'm sorry. No, 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 you're good. You're good. It's kinfolk happening. Like the mental connection that we have because we're bat cousins, it's there. However, I am very disappointed in myself because Paul mentioned the Freedom Fighters, and I did not put that on my list. And I would have put that on my list instead of my next choice, which is Harvey Collector's Comics number four, which reprints two issues of Wendy the Good Little Witch. <laughs> oh. So I'm so old school, I print these out on papers. So I am holding up the paper that <laughs> has Wendy on it, but I am throwing that away and holding the Freedom Fighters out of 
internet and putting that in my list. Now, if you're wondering why Paul and I never say that we're going to buy Batman family in these, they are grandfathered into our collections. But I am going to pick the Joker with Sherlock Holmes. I am going to pick the Justice League that Paul talked about. And I'm going to pick up the Marvel Treasury Edition giant superhero team-ups. And it says team-ups but you know, they're Marvel characters, they're Marvel heroes, they're fighting. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a melee on the cover. The next one I alluded to earlier, Shazam number 23. Absolutely love Shazam, everything about it. The second to last one is Walt Disney's Comics and Stories 425 with Donald Duck on the cover. I had extra money left over. I'll dip into a gold key Walt Disney every now and then. And then my last one is the world's finest comic that we talked about. Ready to start into the fourth story? I want to hear about the general. Here we go. This is now the secret war of the phantom general not to be confused with the secret war from marvel but the secret war of the phantom general and it is a team up of batman robin and the elongated man as you may know elongated man had a backup story and detective for many years and here they decided to squish them together into one extra long story because it's 24 pages written by john broom with the silver age combo of carmine infantino and joe giella on art originally appeared in detective number 340 from 1965. Batman and Robin are zooming towards downtown Gotham to meet their friend, the stretchable sleuth, Ralph Dibney, aka the Elongated Man. But they are sidetracked to the Gotham City Terminal where a huge gang is robbing the ticket windows in the safe. The gang is surprisingly well organized and despite the efforts of our heroes, they get away with the loot with an almost military-like precision, even carrying a wounded thug away on a stretcher. As Batman and Robin describe the caper to the Disneys, we strangely cut to Earth Prime for an explanation from writer John Broom, sporting a very beatnik-style goatee, who describes the reason that elongated man is in Gotham. Turns out Ralph is trailing General Von Dort, a Nazi who has been believed dead since World War II. Ralph and Sue have been on a jaunty tour of South America, as they do, when they first heard the rumors of the general who had been hiding out but still planning to take over the world. But in reality, Von Dort had been meeting secretly with thugs in Gotham, claiming he needs an underground army so he can plan crimes to make them all rich. That's when the detectives realize their cases are connected. After the meeting, Elongated Man continues his spade work while the dynamic duo bust heads in the underground. They have no luck for a few nights until they spot paratroopers descending upon Gotham Park, where a charity auction is being held. They zoom the Batmobile over there, and once again, fisticuffs ensue. This time, however, the general was not there to advise the crooks, and Batman and Robin make quick work of them. Where was he? He has abandoned his troops, stealing his, quote, real objective secretly from a laboratory and hightailing it to the airport where he boards a flight to South America. A couple of days later, Ralph returns to Gotham when he informs Batman and Robin that Von Dort had been in charge of a secret Nazi death ray weapon which failed due to the absence of a special isotope called M244. Batman realizes that the charity auction theft was a diversion and the terrific trio, that's for you, Sean, <laughs> rush to the Batplane and head to South America. Searching for a needle in a haystack, the heroes employ their nuclear detection device and find the hideout of the general. Ralph finds him first, but Von Dort is able to hypnotize the stretchable sleuth who tussles with Batman and Robin until they are able to break the spell. The three of them are finally able to defeat the general and secure the device in the isotope. Back in Gotham, they're treated to a fine tea by Sue, who is never ruffled by anything. Whew. I felt like I was reading one of your synopsis, Sean. What did you think of this 24-page 
epic. I love it, love it, love it, love it. It, it really does have everything. But before we get into it, and I hope I am not putting you on the spot, stories of this length, like tw- 24, 25 pages, that was pretty uncommon. It was uncommon. They usually would have several stories, eight, nine pages by the Silver Age, right? There was a 15 to 18 page story and a six to 10 page story. And that was your comic book. That's what usually Detective was. That's why it was special that this uh, was a team up. And that's probably the reason they picked it to include. But you're absolutely right. It was special. There is so many cool things about the story. First of all, Nazi villain. Yes, the best villain you could have because you can do anything to them and it is justified. So that's great. You have elongated man. So I have a bunch of stuff to say. I'll let you be professional and go through and then I'll add my fanboy stuff because it's great. All right, let's take it by beat. So the first scene of the robbery in the train station, top of page four, Batman looks like he has his neck broken. I mean, that looks like, <laughs> and there's a, a crack sound effect coming out of it. Man, that looks like it hurts. The train station scene, I love, technically this is at least like a two floor, but looking at that panel, it really reminds me of the Philly train station and i don't know how many people have gone yeah, through it but there. Like yeah. that beautiful and cavernous and spacious and there's still stores like on the ground floor looking at this panel i'm like i'm, I'm in philly right now yeah, it looks like 30th street station or it could be penn station yeah. in new york or union station in washington it could be any of those places but it's gotham terminal then batman gets him back by a big pow at the bottom of that page just good action sequence but then they threw a grenade at him which or a a smoke grenade rather which i thought was pretty funny and it provides carman infantino or the anchors i'm not exactly sure that panel on the top of page five where it's smoky that is so well done and it and it's not any kind of after reproduction effect that's just drawing yeah. it, it looks fantastic they escape by train and they lock batman and robin out and by the time they break through the train is gone and they're loading the guy on the street you can barely see the guy on the stretcher that's you have to actually read the word balloon to notice that the guy in the stretcher is there very impressive with the general and it is a little bit more evident when you read it on the app. Oh, uh, yeah that makes sense so batman is like i don't know what's going on so then the next scene right they're in the hotel and okay it's a little bit weird that John Broom just puts himself in the story to recap. I guess this was to make sure that the readers understood that now I'm going to tell you a recap. He's sitting there with his goatee and his typewriter. And I like behind him, there's a thing that says deadline 3965 JS, which of course is Julius Schwartz. He's got books on his bookshelf, Catch 22. and mm-hmm. I love that. And of course, you would never, ever see anything like that today. But I love that. Like, it's, it had such personality. I, I think it's fantastic. And then we get our first look at Von Dort, and he looks like he could have stepped right out of Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. Here's an interesting tidbit about Von Dort. This is his only appearance, but his son, Willie Von Dort, menaced Batman and Wonder Woman, the mod version and the tracksuit Wonder Woman, in Brave and the Bold number 87, The Widowmaker. That's the one where Batman's driving the race car and about to crash oh, into yeah. Wonder Woman and it's tied down. That is actually his son. And that one's not written by Broom. I think that one's written by Bob Haney. For some reason, they picked his son to be the the villain in that one. One thing I want to point out, and it's a little, little bit off topic, but with Ralph and Sue, I absolutely love them. I always have. And maybe 10 minutes before we started recording this podcast, it dawned on me, Elongated Man and Kind of Sue was on the Flash TV show. But I would love an HBO Max show with Ralph and Sue but really done for grown-ups. Now, I'm not saying like adult, but like for grownups in the style of The Thin Man and Remington Steele and Heart to Heart, where these two people are world travelers, they're adventurers, Mm -hmm. you know, they're detectives. 
I don't know that I want Sue so much to be like the second chair tech person, which I think they'd probably make her now. But I, I would love to see that married couple in love, traveling the world yeah. and getting into mystery and adventures with kind of like a sidebar superhero stuff. Maybe a superhero would show up once or twice a season, maybe. And, and a lot of like non-powered superheroes. I would love to see that. At the bottom of page uh, nine, they have to add a comment that says, notice anything different? The elongated man has acquired a new costume since this adventure took place. So they made sure, this is Bob Rosakis, right? He made sure that everybody knows that, hey, the elongated man is in the Justice League right now. He's got the night, fancier costume. And this is the days when he had a plain old purple jumpsuit. It is funny. I don't think elongated man has ever had really great costumes. Yeah. I love the idea of his third costume which was kind of like the purple and the white i like the idea of that but i don't know that that really ever translated well then we get a part two and really pretty cool visual with these paratroopers yeah. diving in yeah again this is carmine and ventino when he was in his prime the next couple of pages man robin is taking care of business he is mowing them down <laughs> robin's got like four panels in a row and the first sound effect is plomp Oh, go ahead. You're probably going to say the same thing I am. I'll let you go because I love it. Top of page 14. We gave Batman a hard time for swinging that guy around by the head a couple issues ago. Here, Batman's at least swinging the guy by the feet. And he's, sw he's swinging in a circle, <laughs> knocking the other thugs down with the other guy's head. It's a great, great shot. And how fantastic is it? Right before that, he has some guy by the neck. Like his, <laughs> his arms, another guy's going to punch Batman. And Batman pulls the guy over. That has to be in some action movie. And I'm kind of eh about action movies, but I want to see that because that's fantastic. So then we get the scene where we find out that General Von Dort isn't there, right? And that's why they're able to defeat him so easily because he abandoned them because he was just using them. I love that plot point. He was just using them to get access you know yeah he got some money but he now is using them as a diversion which is another military tactic and he's got them as a diversion and he goes with his one trusted guy i guess to steal this special element and then they and then they walk onto the plane with a radioactive element this is a commercial flight <laughs> <laughs> long before the tsa <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> So then they figure out by Gingle <laughs> that they have to go and find them. And this page with the Starman ad, I love how the bat plane just lands vertically like a rocket ship. <laughs> That's some quest stuff right there. And then the plane is landed and Ralph stretches his neck. So he knocks the guy out with his head. <laughs> Yeah, like he's going for the kill shot with his head at the bottom of page 19. This guy is curled up in the fetal position after that. So they didn't really play up much this monocle that he's got that can hypnotize. He did a tiny bit at the beginning. I couldn't decide whether they wanted him to be a supervillain or a tactical. I thought it was more effective, the parts where he was a tactician. And so I thought that was weird because I guess maybe they had more pages and they wanted to see Batman and Robin tangle up with Elongated Man, I guess. I don't know. And Batman explains it at the end. And like evidently this monocle works by creating a kind of concentrated light imparting a hypnotic effect i don't know what that means they throw it in so i'm glad i appreciate it i now can believe this like it doesn't have to be honest it has to be believable that's my thing so so i believe it now so then batman takes them out they get the isotope and they head back to gotham and they're treated to a cup of tea by sue which i love that ending i love it. fantastic yeah like you said and batman's thought bubble is great whatever happens nothing ruffles ralph's wife sue just looking at her makes you realize that everything is all right in the world and probably always will be amen bruce isn't that nice and then he's thinking about julie madison who he let go <laughs> 
That is it. Other than Infantino in his prime is just beautiful. Like that early flash work, his Batman detective. Super love it. So visual and dynamic. And we talk about the sense of motion, you know, mm -hmm. especially with elongated man, mm -hmm. stretching neck and like when he's pointing his finger he's just a master like i love it before we sign off as most of our listeners know running the fire and water podcast network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows were added so if you're enjoying what you hear on the show or any of the other shows please consider becoming a patron we are not all bruce wayne but any small amount that you can give helps defray the cost and none of the money that you send to the network will be used to rent any kind of sloop. <laughs> to find out how, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, and thanks. Now, we're going to play a couple of podcast promos, and when we return, we will read your listener feedback. Just imagine the mightiest heroes of our time. All of them on one team. Since there are so many of us, we have a chance to do more than just put out fires. We can be proactive. We can do some real good in the world. JLU Cast brings you coverage of Justice League Unlimited, the ultimate gathering of DC's heroes and villains, and the culmination of the greatest interpretation of the DC Universe ever. Join Chris and Cindy Franklin as they relive the team-ups, the battles, the conspiracies. I had no idea that the Girl Scouts were responsible for the crop circle phenomenon. Few people do. Few even think to ask the question. The romance and the fun. A head start. You're getting soft in your old age. Don't you have a tall building to go leave? And the adventure continues. Find us wherever fine fire and water podcasts are available. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. A monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus. We started with the very first issue, and our coverage goes all the way through breakdowns. We're going issue by issue in release order, tackling two comics per episode, both a Justice League America issue and a Justice League Europe issue. Now, along the way, we're also taking time out for special episodes covering the quarterly book, interviews with various comic book creators, discussing the plethora of spin-off series, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and more. And when we're all done, we'll wrap up our coverage by looking at the 2003 and 2005 stories formerly known as the Justice League, and I can't believe it's not the Justice League. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Batman. Martian Manhunter. Captain Atom. Fire. Ice. Rocket Red. The Flash. The Elongated Man. Maxwell Lord. Elrond. Power Girl. Renard de Rousse. I mean, Crimson Fox. Guy Gardner. Metamorpho. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Wanna make something of it? Welcome back. Right now, we're going to read and respond to your listener feedback. As a reminder, in order to comment, please go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and find the relevant episode of Batman Family Reunion. In addition, remember, you can always email us at batmanfamilyreunion at gmail.com. Remember, this is a reunion. So if there's an upcoming episode you would like to join us to talk about, or even just a particular story, email us and we will slot you in. We've got a lot of comments this month, so let's jump into it, Sean. Our first comment comes from Chris Franklin, who dropped in on the picnic this very episode. Chris says, great show again, fellas. That first story reminds me a lot of the classic Star Trek episode, Shore Leave. There, the crew inadvertently decides to take some R&R &R on a lush green planet. 
unknowing that it is also essentially an amusement park that reads your mind and makes your fantasies come true, sometimes with nearly deadly results. I will say, I think Vince Coletta's inks have overpowered Jose Luis Garcia Lopez's praise be his name, name punch somewhat. It's still solid art, and you can still see his brilliance pre- peeking through. But Vince could, at least sometimes, drain the energy out of the best artists. It's not bad inking, but it's not enhancing the art either. I first encountered an uncostumed Kathy Kane in Detective 485, where she was instantly killed. Whoa, Sean, spoiler. Yeah, it's funny. This is Sean's beat. In my timeline, that story in Detective 485 doesn't exist. (laughs) But we'll get back to Chris's comment. Fortunately, I met the costumed Batwoman, even if it was the older Earth 2 version, in Alan Brennert's and Jim Aparo's Stone Cold Classic, Brave and the Bold 182, my favorite comic of all time. I've always had a soft spot for the original version of Kathy Kane because of this. Kite Man's profile has certainly went up since being mentioned on the Peacemaker HBO Max series. Here's hoping he shows up in season two. I had never read the story, so I had no idea Dick Sprang visually created Kite Man. Brain, Batman of the year 3000, does return in Batman 67 in 1951. That's quite a callback for the time, since reader turnover was said to be every four to six years or so. I had no idea Alvin Schwartz wrote under another pen name. As Schwartz, he's pretty prolific at DC, way up into the 60s. I believe he went on to write some pretty metaphysical musings in the last few years, if I'm recalling the Alter Ego Spotlight article on him correctly. Yeah, that's really interesting about Alvin Schwartz. I didn't move on to research him a little bit more, but I had heard his name and more. He probably used that pseudonym a lot more. I'm going to have to search out Batman number 67 to uh, find that story because I'm not sure I've ever read that. So that's pretty cool. Thanks for the uh, tip there, Chris. Moving on to Bat Cousin Chuck Coletta, who adds, anyone who's interested in learning more about Vince Coletta may want to check out the book, The Thin Black Line, Perspectives on Vince Coletta, Comics' Most Controversial Inker from 2010. Actually, I think it may be a good topic for a future Fire and Water episode. He is often discussed in rather negative terms, and I would appreciate an in-depth look at his career highlights or lowlights. I may be distantly related to Vince. The two L Colettas are a bit more rare than we (laughs) one L types. Another standout episode. So thanks, Chuck. Actually, based on your recommendation, I looked up that book on Amazon and it's now in my to-read pile. Maybe we'll put something together to take a read for that. He's a constant source of conversation on the network. And out of any show on the network, we here at Batman Family Reunion especially are interested in family feuds and family <laughs> get-togethers. So, so absolutely. I mean, maybe the one L Colettas had a uh, <laughs> feud with the two L Colettas and, and they don't speak to each other anymore. I don't know. I think they were fighting over an issue of first issue special. <laughs> now, Chris Franklin comes back and adds, I've been meaning to pick up that book. There's also a good episode of the YouTube series Comic Tropes on Vince that is fascinating. It references that book often. I think Coletta was a good artist, maybe even a great one, but he valued monetary gain over artistic integrity, and it often showed. Despite solid work here and there over the years, he ruined his own reputation by being the rush job guy. Yeah, and Chuck replies back to Chris, I tend to agree with you here. Sometimes we seem to forget that comic books are not only an art form, but also a product with set production and distribution schedules. It's kind of weird sharing a last name with someone largely reviled. I met Paul Levitz once, and the first thing he asked me was if I was related to Vince. I read the book on Vince Coletta years ago and probably should take another look. (laughs) Network all-star and host of Film & Water, Pod Dylan, and Treasury Cast, among others, Rob Kelly pipes in. 
Fun show as usual, boys. You both still have the youthful podcaster joie de vie of Shag and I, which stopped around episode 14 of the Fire and Water <laughs> podcast and has not been seen since. May the odds be ever in your favor. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, inked by Vince Coletta, is like saying filet mignon cooked in Gatorade with a side <laughs> salad made of dirt and broken glass. Ouch. <laughs> On to our Twinkie debate, Rob says, I used to love Twinkies, ate them all the time. Then on a whim, I bought them again a few years ago while in the supermarket. Either they changed the formula or my taste buds have changed. You can't go home again. And in reference to my comment about me being a gold star gay, Rob writes, if I recall correctly, quote unquote, gold star gay was from Brave and the Bold number 73 by Bob Haney and Jack Starling. To which uh, bat uncle and future guest Captain Entropy says, of course, Rob, trying to pick a random obscure issue of B&B for a gag, picks an Aquaman issue and the first appearance of Volko Natch. You can take the boy out of Atlantis, but... I actually looked up at that issue and thought it was hilarious that it was an awkward issue. <laughs> and our next set of comments come from Across the Pond and our bat black sheep of the family and greatest family member ever, Martin Gray. Glory, Glory to Gray. Gray. Cheers for another splendiferous episode. This is an issue I never had, and it seems to have been the best yet. From the cover with the newly minted side heads to the fantastic future Batman fable, this is almost all win. This issue's cobbled together on a toilet break Batwoman <laughs> logo shows I'm right about the reframing of reprints. Just look at that thing. Tatty, cheap, utterly unworthy of the circus goddess that is Kathy Kane. Just think of the ornate gorgeousness of mid-century traveling carnival posters. Then take a look at that cack masthead. It's an insult to Batwoman. I do have to agree with him on, on that one, although I'm not quite sure what cack means. <laughs> it's true. Like immediately when he talked about circus posters, I'm like, oh my God, yes, that would be a fantastic logo for Batwoman. No wonder Martin and I are exactly on the same wavelength about everything. <laughs> then he goes on to say, and still on the subject of logos, it was the new Batman and Robin logos from down the line further in the issues I was talking about. The blocky efforts with the hero heads looming over masks and capes Peculiar. Yeah, no wonder Martin and I disagree about everything and are opposite our opinions. Martin then goes on to say, my bad as regards to my issue two comment about Dick's sex doll legs. It was the final panel of page seven of the Alfred strip to which I should have referred you fine fellas. Perhaps you could include the image as a gallery extra and no fair to characterize my comments as if I was saying I enjoy sex dolls. I've never tried them. I think at this time we will retire the sex doll commentary and stick to Twinkies. Here, here. The new story was a lot of fun. The penultimate panel of the story with Babs pointing at Dick and his reaction is just brilliant. As for how did the dinosaur illusions work? It's obvious to fans of that era, Mr. Jupiter's drug-filled balloons. <laughs> and if you don't understand Martin's references, read the early Teen Titan issues and you will reward yourself with Haney zaniness. <laughs> Martin goes on to say, and while you're correct about how great it was to see the up-to-date threads on the various players, I do think Babs was dressed a little inappropriately for her congressperson meeting. I mean, a belly shirt? <laughs> That's what makes her the coolest congresswoman in, in Washington. <laughs> exactly right. 
Martin then goes on to say, I don't think I'd enjoy the Isle of a Thousand Thrills personally, but then I've never fancied going to a Walt Disney fun park. People in giant animal costumes insisting on jollity, horrifying. <laughs> and the hilarious thing is, he's talking to two huge fans of Walt Disney World. <laughs> Martin then goes on to say, I've read the Batwoman story previously. Kathy Kane is just the best. She doesn't need those stupid bat men folk. I hope she gets a partner of her own, perhaps one with a good tennis elbow. Good, good job, call good out, job Martin. Martin. Then Martin says, Kite Man is not worthy of consideration. Except on the Harley Quinn show, he is pretty hysterical on that show. I absolutely agree with that. Going on to talk about the ads that we discussed in the issue, and in particular, a $6 million man action figure ad. Martin says, my big brother had the Steve Austin doll. And although I don't recall the radio, he did have the rolled up sleeve circuits. Well, plastic sticker on his arm. And you could look through the eye. It was all a bit rubbish. I must be the anti-Sean. The Bigfoot episode of The Six Million Dollar Man is part of my favorite childhood memory. I was in the sitting room one Christmas Eve morning with one of those episodes on the telly, wrapping presents while my mother was in the kitchen cooking mince pies and the cooking smells were wafting through. I can still smell it now. The feeling of happiness and security stays with me. And to that, I say, well, he couldn't get to you all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> but Martin does bring up a really fantastic point, how memories are so embedded in like the com well, everything, but especially like the comics we read. It's only slightly off topic, but I remember reading the Batman Treasury with Rachel Ghoul out on my porch one summer. Like I can still like see me there sure. reading it the porch light i mean it just that's a great issue anyway yeah. but it's just like an extra special memory so martin is right on martin then goes on to say the batman of the future story is just brilliant as you say of course i guess that brain was a contracted bruce wayne pain and shares now i will tell you i read this comment so many times because i thought maybe pain and shares with some kind of British slang or something. <laughs> but it took me about 14 years to realize that what you wrote is a contraction, just like brain is Brooke Swain, pain is Paul Keene, and shame is Shauna Myers. So great job, Martin. Now Martin goes on to say, I've never had a hostess fruit pie. I expect there's something like from the Garden of Eden, the serpent. Yes, you are correct, Martin regarding the moniker that we've added to Martin Gray's name. Glory to Gray. I like that. Even if I do not deserve to be spoken of in the same breath as Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise Please his name. name. Moving on to others. Travis Morgan says, great show, guys. You are a wonderful addition to the Fire and Water Network. Well, thank you, Travis. I appreciate that. Thank you. When you talked about Joseph Green and his career as a science fiction writer, I was surprised that you didn't mention that Julie Schwartz was one of the early fans who published a sci-fi fanzine and was the literary agent to some of the sci-fi and horror greats like Ray Bradbury, Robert Block, and H.P. Lovecraft. I wonder if that was Green's connections to writing comics. Keep up the good work. That's an excellent point, Travis. Of course, we, we did know that, but I hadn't made that connection. But that's a very reasonable assumption to make how Julie would have known Joseph Green. Excellent point. Thanks for bringing it up. Thanks, Travis. And we got a comment from Ange who pipes in with, Another great episode, great coverage. I think these days, the first story would be explained by hard light constructs, a sort of tangible hologram. Not that that means anything anyways. So a giant holodeck on the boardwalk. <laughs> exactly right. Okay. Kite Man has seen a lot of resurgence lately with Tom King bringing him back. 
I do love that his secret identity is Charles Brown. Anyways, I'm burying the lead. Of all the Hostess products, I love fruit pies the best. And of them, blueberry is the superior pie. That doesn't mean I don't like Twinkies, but I'll swap a Twinkie for a fruit pie every time. That's why Ange and I are going to sit together and we'll swap. <laughs> Alas, since the journey to hashtag goal weight, Hostess indulgences are extremely rare, like maybe once a year. Damn you, goal weight. <laughs> and I completely understand when we change the time. That always starts my workout program, which is uh, I do couch to 5K. So like I go out and walk jog each morning. So yeah, uh, I have given up soda, which soda for me is like alcohol or drugs or breathing for other people. We next heard from Network co-founder and host of Ohatmu, uh, Panel by Panel and many others, Siskoid who takes me to task for my lack of Monty Python knowledge. Cousin Paul really needs to watch some Flying Circus. I shouted at my podcaster when he wasn't cluing in to one of the most famous Monty Python sketches or pair of sketches ever, probably only behind the dead parrot sketch. I've been making Spanish Inquisition references on my podcast for years, all of them flying over his head, I guess. It hurts <laughs> like being prodded by soft cushions. I admit to not having watched Monty Python, so all that stuff did go right over my head. Discord demerits for me or whatever. I guess I was too busy reading Batman family comic books. <laughs> and to Discord's comment, Martin Gray writes, it's funny. Monty Python seems to be more like a brawl these days than here in Dear Old Blight. I like the films, but found the episodes I saw not for me. I don't know of anyone of my generation who likes it. I once had to sit through a dinner party with two visiting Americans who were continually quoting the show, bless. And I love spam and chips. Next up, number one Joker fan, Rob McCarthy uh, pipes in. Somebody mentioned Joker number five. So I have to mention that's what made me want to write comics. Were there any solo Joker stories in Batman family? There were not, sadly. And it is interesting because Joker ran at the same time as mm -hmm. Batman family. And off the top of my head, I think Joker ran for nine issues, I think. That sounds right. There was a 10th issue. So they could have slotted that into Batman family somewhere. Yeah, the uh, last issue is actually printed in either the trade paperback or the omnibus. I, I have read it. It's in black and white and they never colored it. Yeah, my only guess is like Joker did have his own magazine, but maybe they thought putting him as a solo feature in Batman family would be too rude to Batman. <laughs> I don't know why, that, why they didn't just slot it over. <laughs> okay, we're going to move on to Doug Van Diver. And he says, what do you want to do tonight, Brain? Same thing we do every night, Ricky. Fight to take back our world. <laughs> I got that reference. Just so you know, Siskoid, I got that reference. It must have been my impeccable reading. There you go. <laughs> he then goes on to say, Props to the extra foresighted assemblers of the time capsule. Not only did they apparently choose a medium for storing the newsreels that admirably outlasts film stocks made of nitrate or acetate, the most permanent film medium we know of now is polyester, which is supposed to last a thousand years, but also they managed to get films of the sensational character <laughs> find of 1940 
Not bad for 1939 curators. I love that comment. MVP comment of the of the month, I have to say, Doug. Absolutely. I wish I had thought of that during the recording of that episode, but that is that is hysterical. I respect and admire anyone that can throw shade like that. Yeah, that was awesome. And last but not least, our friend Lizanne Oswalt comes to the reunion. Impressive podcast, most impressive. The story is decent enough, but you're right. It doesn't make any sense that there would be projections. They would have to be hard light projections for all the interactions that Batgirl and Robin have with them. On the next story, it's a decent enough reprint. Although I'm not the biggest fan of this version of Batwoman, the best thing that came from her was the version of Batgirl that was connected to her becoming Flamebird. They're not treating Batwoman very well here. Some guy gets dirt on his face and she thinks he's Batman. <laughs> Sprang's artwork is very good for its time. The story, however, shows us why Kite Man will never be a big threat in the DC universe. I think his real name is actually Charles Brown, which is correct. How DC got away with that, I have no idea. I am surprised he never appeared in a Jimmy Olsen comic book. Then that way, Jimmy's girlfriend, Lucy, could steal his kite or perhaps defeat him by hitting them in the head with a football. <laughs> Great way to end the feedback. Thank you, Lizanne and all of everybody who gave us feedback. That was terrific. Okay, we're going to switch over to our Facebook and Twitter mentions. And once again, please always remember, if I say your name incorrectly, that's my super secret signal to you saying that you are special. And if I've forgotten you entirely, it means I think you're even more special than that. So we'll start on the Facebook side of the street. And we're going to say thanks a lot to Ruth Sutherland, Brian Linton, Mike Thomas, Herschel Mimas, Max Romero, Waiting for Doom, Jay Campbell, Terry O'Malley, Keith G. Baker, Billy Dunleavy, Chris Franklin, Chris Lydon, Clinton Robison, Paul Wildenberger, Kevin Mayo. Okay, now we're going to go to Twitter. We're going to flip our apps to Twitter, and we're going to mention everyone who tweeted, retweet, liked, and made their presence known on Twitter. We're going to start off with the network feeds. We're going to start off with Fire and Water Network, Superman Move Men, For All Mankind SF, Treasury Comics, and the best show on the network, including Batman Family Reunion, and that is Digest Cast. We're going to say thank you to Earth 2 Chris, KR Dragon underscore 2. Michael Thomas, Jeff Owens, Liz Ann Oswald, Captain Freakout's Psychedelic Radio, Siskoid, This Lightsaber Kills Fascists, Chris Lydon, Ed Moore, Martin Gray, Ward Hill Terry, Dave's Comics Heroes Blog, Dr. Pop Culture BGSU, Maz, Justin Steiner, the only American Captain Britain fan, and M. Wolf. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you to everybody who recognizes us on social media. And thanks to all you who took the time to write in with comments. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Tune in again the first week in May, and you will hear us talk about another Batgirl Robin team up, The Signal Man, and the first appearance of Ace the Bat Hound. Sean, I am heading over, and I am going to try one more time to beat Chris Franklin at Horseshoes. You have a great month. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next month at the reunion. <laughs>